episode of the Smith & Hesson podcast. I am Laura McGoldrick, so glad to have you with us today. And it's a very festive show. Not here with me in studio, but Mike Hesson and Ian Smith are joining me now. And it's a full Christmas off. And I've got to say, gents, <laughs> look, um, uh, Mike, I'll start with you. Your Christmas treat, talk us through it, the decor. How did you come to those decisions colour-wise? What happened? Oh, it's sort of a concoction being built up over a number of years. We sort of get given a few every year, so we just... We just add them. Uh, the two girls have been the main instigators of putting that together, but all in all, it's a pretty steady tree. I'm pretty happy with it. Pretty steady indeed. I, I like it. I mm. like the colours. But, Smithy, I'm going to have to hand it to Louise. Not you, I'm sorry, because I'm not sure how much of a, a hand you've had in that masterpiece behind you. I've had no hand in it at all. In fact, I didn't even get the, uh, the Christmas tree or any of the decorations down from the attic this year. had a, a son home to do that, so... I have done absolutely nothing. All I've actually done to contribute to today's performance is turn the switch on on the wall. Uh, so that is a total performance uh, by uh, my wife, who's uh, put this year, she's put the lights inside the wrapping around the outside and the baubles down the bottom and just left a, a little room for the uh, the angel on the top. So uh, we're very proud of our effort this year. And it's uh, whilst it hasn't been a hands-on joint effort, I'm wholeheartedly behind it. <laughs> Very good, Smithy. Make sure we'll clip this off and send that to Louise. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, Jen, so, I mean, we have only one thing to talk about today, really, and that was that second test match, uh, the last uh, match in the New Zealand Tour of India, and it was uh, very disappointing from a New Zealand perspective, obviously, for lots of reasons, um, the way in which they lost, uh, and given how well they'd done in that first test ma match, and we talked at length about how they had the opportunity to win it, to play like they did in Mumbai, yes, you'd imagine that's a very, very disappointed Black Caps camp? Well, I think they would have got a lot of confidence from the way they fought hard in the first test. And then to turn up in Mumbai with that bit of extra bounce um, and for Ajaz Patel to do what he did uh, throughout the first sort of four or five sessions of that test match gave New Zealand a chance. And unfortunately, with the bat first innings, uh, look, it was, a, it was a poor performance. And it was a, a performance that showed uh, a lack of match practice, a lack of... Um, I guess, uh, planning in terms of uh, your own individual game plan and how you're going to go about things. Uh, and then it basically just got on a bit of a roller coaster. And, you know, we've always talked about how difficult it is to start in India. And only two uh, batsmen got double figures. So that certainly showed that uh, not enough did. And once they got a start, uh, no one was able to make a contribution. You get bowled out for in the 60s in the first innings of a test match. Um, and therefore, you're, you're always behind the eight ball. And India in their second inning showed that it wasn't unplayable by any stretch. So uh, the fact they were able to, to bat again and, and get close to 300, put New Zealand out of the game uh, and showed that it was playable. And then obviously we were, you know, we were a long way behind and going to struggle to save that test match from there. Smithy, our biggest ever loss, 372 runs we lost that match by. You've watched a lot of cricket in your time. In terms of a Black Caps performance, where do you put that? Oh, hugely disappointing uh, on the back of what one guy was able to do. I mean, you get one person in a test match contributing the way Ajaz Patel did with 14 wickets by himself. Uh, you know, it was astonishingly how good he was and astonishingly how, uh, how such a lack of support followed him behind it. Uh, I, I don't really uh, understand a lot of what happened, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I know uh, India and India are a very tough, uh, tough foe to combat. Uh, sometimes their conditions are hard to adapt to in a short space of time. But uh, I, I look at uh, and listen to what Hess just said there, and he said the word lack of planning uh, from a lot of people about that uh, that particular performance. You know, uh, if you've got guys around the bat, 
Um, how do you dislodge them? How, how do you uh, make it uncomfortable for them to be there? Uh, how do you take uh, LBWs and things out of play? Uh, they must have talked about that after the first test match. But if they did, they certainly weren't able to um, to implicate what what you know and turn it into a match practice on the field. So hugely disappointing. There should have been ten guys lining up to apologise to Ajaz Patel at the end of that uh, because he was so far the standout. It wasn't funny. I want to talk about that lack of planning and and, and preparation perhaps in just a minute. But I do think we need to to, to talk about Ajaz Patel and just what he did in that first uh, innings. He bowled 47.5 overs, took 10 wickets for 119 runs. Then he bowled 26 overs in the second dig, four for 106. Now. He, he suffered from a calf niggle during the winter. And if it was... <laughs> I mean, that, that is a young man who has worked incredibly hard to get to this point. He hadn't had a lot of cricket in winter. To come out and do that, obviously Mumbai is very special to him. That's where he was born. Uh, and he talked at length about that, arriving at, 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 at Mumbai and feeling lots of emotions around it. For him to come out and play the way he did, with the lack of support, but to keep bowling. I mean, that's some serious numbers on the board. He must be... Unbelievably sore today, Mike. Look, he will be, um, but he's built up for this over a number of years. I mean, for central districts, uh, the Stags, he bowls a huge amount of overs, and he has for years. He often did, they just put him down at one end, just let him basically roll it over, go at two and over. The first innings, often he bowls over the wicket to try and control the run rate, and then when there's a little bit of turn later on, he comes back around to the right handers. You know, he, he has grooved in his game over. Um, four, five, six seasons of first-class cricket where he's been, uh, you know, the, the top wicket-taker uh, for at least three of those seasons. I don't know the exact numbers, but he's been hugely impressive. He he's used to bowling a huge amount of overs. He would have benefited from Campor. I think we, we talked before the second test that neither of our spinners were uh, were great in Campor and they were short of match practice. But uh, they've got overs under their belt and certainly AJ has benefited from that. And the fact he's bowled 73 and a half overs... Um, you know, he will be sore, but he'll also have that little smile on his face to go, look, uh, I've turned up to my hometown. Um, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago during the T20 World Cup, and this was the match he was looking forward to. Obviously, his extended family's in Mumbai. He calls Mumbai a town, which is obviously couldn't be further from the truth. It's a massive place, um, but he, he wanted to go there. He wanted to perform. He knew there was bounce in the surface. Um, he'd played there before, uh, so he knew that that was an opportunity for him to show his skills. And that was, I mean, that is just remarkable, absolutely remarkable to get 10 wickets against a side packed full of players who know how to play spin. Remarkable achievement, one that should never, ever be taken away from them. Absolutely not. Now, Smithy, you know a lot about um, players who take a lot of wickets at an innings. One that you played with got very close to what uh, mm. Ajaz was able to achieve. I did see a delightful interview post-match with both Ajaz Patel and Ruchan Ravindra, who was under the ball coming up for that 10th wicket. And the commentator said to Ruchan, so how were you feeling when you knew that Ajaz was on the cusp of something truly great and you had the potential to make that happen by taking the catch? And he said, mate, I was absolutely crapping my pants. And I applaud his honesty because you'd have to think that you would be. Um, what did you make of what Ajaz was able to achieve, Smithy? Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he in lockdown before this? Was he un wasn't he unable to join his uh, Central District's teammates and, and get any real bowling in the middle under his belt? Uh, so that makes it even more remarkable uh, that he was able to find that groove um, so quickly on uh, in, in terms of uh, getting it out in the middle. Uh, look, it's, it's probably... Um, I'm still, you know, we're a couple of days down the track now. I'm struggling to think 
that it's not the best achievement in New Zealand cricket history by one individual. Uh, you know, Sir Richard Hadley was unbelievably good. He bowled like a machine that day, nigh on perfection. Uh, he took the 10th uh, uh, wicket by taking the catch, uh, but he was a machine that day. Um, but the, the, you can't take away. I mean, it's only been done three times in now in the history of the game, and this game's got a, a deep and long, long history, and a lot of people have tried. A lot of people have got six, seven, eight. Um, you know, one or two have got nine, but I can tell you right here and now, um, that is nigh on impossible to do. And he has done it, uh, and he backed it up and said it wasn't a fluke by getting the first, what, three or four in the second innings as well. So he's an absolute. It was a standout. It was an incredibly good standout performance. Um, you know, it won't ever be taken away from him. No one will ever forget that, just like we never forgot Hadley's and never will. Uh, it, it's, it was a it was a, a real masterclass against the side playing on their home patch that should not be forgotten. He wasn't doing it at home. Uh, he was doing it away in the hardest possible conditions. So I, I really do applaud it. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's as good as anything I've ever seen. And you could see how much the Indian team respected what he did as well. There were some truly uh, lovely things that happened mm. at the end of the match uh, with a shirt, with all, all ten of the wickets that he got on it. You know, it was it was really, truly special. Um, Virat Kohli was back as the Indian captain. Great to see him in there, really fizzing. It was good to see him with that fire in his belly. I do love watching Virat Kohli, really, when he gets a sniff of a win and his reactions and the way he behaves on the field. He's... But let's talk about the other New Zealand bowlers and the performance on the forward, t uh, performance on the park. Tim Southey was good, obviously, without taking any wickets. He was tidy. Um, Kyle Jamieson just struggled a little early on there. Uh, and then you've obviously got Will Somerville. Do you think with the, the lot of chat around the extra bounce in Mumbai that they got it wrong by not having Neil Wagner in there? Look, when you're not on the ground, um, you know, you're making your opinion based on here. But I said before the next, the second test, I would always pick Neil Wagner. Um, I just think he can create things regardless of... Uh, whether there's a little bit of turn in the wicket. I mean, he can bowl, run and bowl cutters that are hard to play. He can bang it in halfway down. I just think he's too good a bowler for New Zealand to leave out, regardless of the conditions. Uh, and he's he's just one that, that he, he doesn't rely on swing. He doesn't rely on, on bounce. He doesn't he relies on that hunger and that ability to, to get in under people's skin. So I would always pick him. Maybe I'm a little bit biased because he's just done a good job for so long. Um, so I... I mean, Cole Jamison's first over went for 12. Outside of that, he was actually relatively tidy. Uh, didn't look particularly effective, which surprised me um, with the bounce. But he wasn't really able to be as consistent as he was in that first test match. So he was, you know, he was a little bit um, disappointing in that respect. Look, Will Somerville, um, he's similar to what Smithy said in terms of AJS Patel. He just hasn't had the overs under his belt. Uh, he also was in lockdown. Uh, wasn't able to play any first-class cricket before going over there. There was no practice... You head straight into the first test where he was a little bit short of a gallop, unable to create any pressure from a, a run rate perspective. And India targeted him. India basically said, all the right-handers said, I'm not going to let you bowl. And they took him out of the game. And uh, Tom Latham kept going back to him because he needed something more from him. But they just kept taking him out of the attack, going four, five, six and over. Uh, couldn't create any pressure. It's another reason why Ajaz Patel's re record of performance was exceptional because other than Tim Southey, there was no pressure built up at the other end. Um, so, look, I think from a bowling point of view, um, 
you know, outside of AJ as the, the obvious contender. Tim Southey was tidy, but outside of that, we're a little bit disappointing. What do you think, Smithy? Do you think they got the selection wrong? Obviously, on the day of the game, they announced that uh, Kane Williamson wasn't going to play with that um, elbow injury again, mm. which is of instant concern, and I don't imagine we're going to see him much during this New Zealand summer. Um, what did you make of, of their selection and how they went about that second test? Yeah, I think they got themselves into a bit of a quandary, really. I, I think deep down they wanted to play Wagner. Um, and and uh, I think if they uh, were playing Wagner, then that was an excellent reason to play Somerville uh, because uh, he was uh, going to run down in those areas where right-handers don't like footmarks. Uh, and that would have created a little bit more assistance for Will Somerville. But it also would have created a hell of a lot of assistance for the Indian spinners as well. And so I'm pretty sure they didn't want to make Ashwin's job any easier by building up any wear and tear on the surface. So I think that any any day of the week, any captain would want would want Neil Wagner in the attack because he knows he's a go-to guy that can either get him out of trouble or slow the pace of the opposition's advance in the game down because that's what he's got. And he's also got a very clear strategy, which has worked pretty much everywhere in the world. And that's why it's one of the other staggering things that we never saw him. Uh, so I'd really like to know, uh, deep down, if, I don't know if we ever will, what the thinking was between Gary Stead, Kane Williamson and Tom Latham as to not in either of those test matches have missed a reliable in there. Uh, as far as I was concerned, um, I'm, I'm not sure Will Somerville, uh, he won't play at home, um, and I'm not quite sure whether he'll play again, and that's probably because he'll be a victim uh, of just having at the other end. When one guy gets 14 um, and, and another guy gets none, uh, the guy at the other end uh, tends to suffer somewhat. So he might be a, a, well be a victim of that. Southie's a given. Uh, he's going to try his heart out the whole time. We've talked about him often enough. Um, but uh, I'm not sure about uh, Jameson here. I think he just looks uh, short of a gallop. Uh, you know, those guys tend to, tend to, we, to be uh, better when they bowl a lot of deliveries in the, in the middle. Uh, and I, I, I kind of suggest that he needs uh, some work. I'm not quite sure how they're going to give him that work uh, leading into uh, the, the series at home. He's a must. He must play there. But um, the first uh, eight or nine days he'll be home, he'll be in quarantine and isolation, etc. But he looks to me to be a player that needs to bowl 25 overs, uh, 30 overs in an innings at some stage before that test series to get himself up to speed. He just looks short of work. Well, I think it's a really good point, Smithy, because he he hadn't played for three, four, five months. Then he basically came in and bowled a heck of a lot of overs with only two seamers uh, in that first test, and he bowled really well. But then to be able to back it up three days later, having had limited rest, having come from nothing to lots, um, mm. you know, there is going to be an element of stiffness and soreness, a lot more for seamers than potentially for spinners. So to bowl back-to-back -back tests... Uh, even though conditions with that bounce could well have suited him, was always going to be a tough ask. And I think you're right. I think he did look, for me, he looked stiff. He wasn't able to bowl the same pace he did in that first test. Wasn't able to be as consistent. Um, so I think he will benefit from more cricket. We talk about how there's been lockdowns and players have been, you know, trapped at home instead of training. I mean, this is something that's going to go on for a little while. You know, how much can you use COVID and lockdowns as an excuse for when you're... Uh, 
national team goes over and represents their country in foreign conditions like that and then we put on a performance like that last one. I know it's challenging times and everyone's got to navigate them but what, I mean, what can you do I suppose when you look at our batsmen and the work that they did uh, particularly in that second test match there were some issues, some, some big issues uh, for a few of them and they'll be feeling a little sad about their performances when they come home. Um, Smithy, what would you... What would you say to them right now? Well, I've got to put some work in. I've got to play every uh, bit of cricket that they're able to do. Some of them might have to relocate to do it under the current system. Uh, as soon as they get out of quarantine, they get out of um, uh, any sort of uh, isolation, they've got to get in and, and put some work in. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think the player we're all trying to hint at here is Ross Taylor, who is so far below par. Um, but then again, he hadn't played any cricket. I mean, uh, he, I'm, I'm going to defend him in that regard. It's very, very hard any day of the week even to go on a really good batting surface and find your timing, uh, find your placement, uh, and find uh, anything about your game if you've had no practice uh, in, in the middle. Uh, and then so double that by putting it into spinning awkward surfaces in India. It was almost mission impossible to, to expect that we'd see the old Ross Taylor. Uh, I, I go back to, you know, that and I'm not quite sure how hard New Zealand cricket tried about this or various associations tried about this, but remember when uh, it was all it seemed absolutely important for the sake of the series that they released four netballers out of, out of Auckland to go and join uh, that series against uh, the English Roses in Christchurch, yep. which was pretty much a meaningless series. They managed to find uh, a room or uh, exemption for those four players to go down there and do that. Why could they not find some exemption for key players going to India to get some cricket under their belt. In other words, let them join their respective sides. Uh, you know, with negative tests, with double vaccine, et cetera. Why would it have been so damned hard to get those players, those ones we really, really needed who were, you know, uh, away from the team, released to go and play some cricket beforehand? Would that have been Mission Impossible? Uh, I, why should it have been Mission Impossible? I, I just don't get that. Uh, he would have been helped by that, Ross Taylor. He'd have had better for that. And I think you saw even a guy with his experience, uh, quite a desperate cricketer at the end, trying to hit his way out of um, out of a, a run glut, uh, you know, out of a situation where he thought, I can't defend here. Let's just hope I can find some timing or find some confidence by hitting a couple over the rope and get some rhythm back. Didn't work. Looked ugly, didn't it? Henry Nichols is another uh, who perhaps that first test in the first innings, he, he fought his way back um, in that second test match, Hess, and he had had a little bit of cricket prior to going over. He'll be disappointed with his performance because he hasn't been able to put together a, a truly great performance uh, in overseas conditions yet. Look, I think before the last innings where he actually showed a bit of a game plan, um, he showed that he was able to apply that game plan. I mean, during the first three innings, he got beaten both on the inside and the outside of the bat, which can happen in India. You know, if the ball's turning, um, sometimes you play for turns, sometimes you don't. Uh, but once you get beaten on both sides, then you've almost got to choose one and say, look, I'm going to play for the, the one that's straight, and if it spins past the outside edge, so be it. Um, and that's, to be fair, looking at the positive side, I look at someone like a Tom Latham. In fact, he's come off no cricket in India. He wasn't at the T20 World Cup. He's come straight into there. He has played some first-class cricket, agreed. Um, but he looked in amazing touch in, in Kampur, um to, to play the innings that he did, um, you know, as did Will Young. So, I mean, those those guys benefited from the fact they had got some first-class cricket under their belt. Um, it's it's so difficult to go from no cricket to India. Um, 
it's actually hard enough to come from New Zealand conditions to India, but to come from no cricket to that is almost impossible. And it takes you a handful of games uh, or at least some warm-up games to get yourself into some rhythm. Otherwise, you find a tempo of, you know, we talk about Ross, for example, the tempo is either I'm going to try and defend and get myself set and, and get used to conditions, or I'm going to go the other way. And I think the guys that played really well throughout the series, someone like a Tom Latham, actually found somewhere in the middle where they were able to defend, they could trust their defence, but they could also sweep and come down the wicket and score, so therefore they could remove some players around the bat. You can only do that once you spend time in the middle, and too many of our, of our batters just weren't able to spend enough time out so, Smithy, who does that issue lie with then? So we look at those players, those players who came over strictly for the test matches alone. There was no warm-up games for them. They landed in India. They had a couple of trainings. Boom, she's into the first test match. Some, like your Southies, KJ obviously decided not to play the T20s. Tim Southie played two of the three. Um, is that New Zealand cricket's issue, that they didn't organise some, some matches beforehand so those test players could get themselves uh, used to the conditions over there? Is that something that perhaps it's actually not fair for us to hold the players to too much account at the moment, even though, you know, they're over there representing themselves as well as their country. Mm -hmm. What's fair? What's fair for us to take out of this series, given that they haven't necessarily, the players, been helped as such in this fast-paced, quick turnaround series? Well, Laura, these were World Test Championship matches. Uh, we're the current World Test Champions, so that everything that we did in this particular mini-series counted for something. Um, I think perhaps um, New Zealand cricket should have looked a little bit longer at the individual situation of some of our players uh, and, and uh, perhaps respected that a little bit more, particularly those guys that couldn't get any cricket. Uh, and I think perhaps we, um, we knew full well it was an awkward selection scenario because we we're always going to have players involved in both of those series, the T20, and were we ever going to be able to find uh, 11 players that could field a team in a practice match? That was the other thing. And, and were they prepared to spend the money to get that scenario set up over in India? They are the kind of things that, that you need to weigh up in terms of the importance of what you're about to undertake. So uh, I'm not quite sure there's, a, there's a, an out-and-out -out villain here. Maybe a set of circumstances didn't conspire to us uh, getting the right preparation in that regard. But I do believe um, you know they could have perhaps tried a little bit harder to get those guys who needed some cricket under their belt, those key players those ones we knew were going to be vital to us, um, able to, to get out and get up and get themselves ready uh, to be able to, to play cricket in the middle. And that's why um, AJS Patel's particular uh, performances scenario is even more the remarkable. I mentioned before Kane Williamson out of that second test match with the ongoing elbow injury. I do not think we'll see him feature for us this summer uh, in New Zealand test. Who's going to replace him? Who would you put in there? And what are we going to do if that elbow doesn't get fixed? Well, I think you talk to the elbow. I mean, I mean, I don't know the exact diagnosis, but it's been going on for way too long, and I'm sure Kane feels the same. Um, and whether, you know, someone does need to bite the bullet and say, look, I actually need some surgery. I, like I said, I don't know if he needs surgery or not, but we can't just keep resting it, and then all of a sudden he plays a game and it flares up again. He's mentioned many times that he can't train um, to the volume that he wants uh, because it flares up. Therefore, it risks the fact of playing the next game. Uh, so we just can't go on like this uh, the way it is. So I think there needs to be a decision made in terms of whether it's three months out, whether it's six, whether it's however long. At least it's long enough to, to have a chance of a full recovery because it's no fun for anyone. Um, the captain of your side is in and out. Uh, you know, it just makes things too difficult. I think from a batting point of view, I think Will Young's done enough to say, look, 
if Devin Conway comes back, um, you know, I need an opportunity in, in that top order. Uh, I mean, Will Young's batted initially, he was at number four. He's batted at three for the Black Caps. He's also open, so he's pretty much filled a spot wherever required. For me, I think Devin Conway's comes back at the top of the order. Uh, he, him and Tom Latham carry on that condition, that um, opening partnership. Will Young bats at three. I think that's an easy fix. Um, and then it's a matter of balance. You know, someone like a Daryl Mitchell, I think he's more suited, certainly in New Zealand conditions, around that, you know, five, six role. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think Will Young has to play. I think he's, he's done his apprenticeship uh, and he's a real top order option for us. He's certainly done his time, that is for sure. Smithy, what would you do um, going forward? The first test match is against Bangladesh, then we've got two tests against South Africa. And where do you fit Trent Bolt, or do you fit Trent Bolt in? How does it work in your eyes? Hey, listen, we'll go back to what we know best, Laura. Don't worry about that. We won't be preparing pitches that Bangladesh remotely like the look of. Um, so there'll be grass, there'll be bounce, there'll be pace, there'll be Trent Bolt, there'll be Tim Southey, there'll be Kyle Jamison, and there really should be Neil Wagner, and there will be uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of hell to pay if there isn't Neil Wagner at home. So there's your, uh, what, it's, it's, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11 sorted out. Uh, for me, um, Devin Conway comes back in and didn't everything turn to custard once he punched his bat? Have we had a win? Have we had anything look like a win since Devin Conway punched his bat? No, we haven't. Uh, so he needs to come back and pay us back. Uh, so we'll put him at the top order uh, along with Tom Latham, and that's formidable. Will Young, is, uh, as he said, uh, he deserves his opportunity. He's been waiting in the wings a long time. He will bat well at three. It's a nice spot for him. Uh, look what he did in England leading up to the World Test Championship. He justified his place there. Um, so, look, he, he looks a really good player to me, compact. It's the most I've seen him play uh, watching him on telly over in India. I, I think he looks good, really well organised. And, you know, if he had a review, he'd had the confidence to review in that second innings of the first test, who knows how that might have turned out in the long run. So we don't know about that. But he's good. So he goes in at three. All this talk about Ross Taylor. Uh, being done and dusted and past it, uh, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, Ross Taylor needs to get some cricket under his belt and, and uh, serious hard work put into him uh, in the uh, net situation or wherever he needs to be, get some quality practice in and then just wipe the slate clean of that, uh, that test uh, match series that we've just had. He goes in at four, <clears throat> maybe it's his last season at home, but we know he'll play better than that. We know he'll be in better nick and he'll do himself justice in that series. Nichols at five. Bought himself a bit more time uh, with that uh, fighting innings in the second innings, but he'll play better at home as well. So these are the guys we know. Uh, you know, it's been disappointing last uh, two weeks, but we can't deny what they've done for us in the past. They were givens going into that tour. Are they all of a sudden no longer good enough to be in that side? No, they're not. Blunder what slips for me, and then you look at uh, perhaps your Daryl Mitchell scenario where he, if he can get bowling to a, a decent standard, does that the Grandholm performance that we've relied on over the years. Does that leave room for Ajaz Patel? I don't think if we do it right, Ajaz Patel would bowl many overs at all against Bangladesh on the surfaces we're going to prepare. So sadly, um, this great Ajaz Patel uh, may be uh, carrying the drink. So let's hope they give him a nice silver tray, uh, beautifully embossed with his achievement to carry the drinks out on because I pretty much see that that is his role against Bangladesh. I'll be making him a cup of tea after what he did over in India. I wouldn't. You just sit there, Ajaz, you just rest that bat, you just stay right there. Uh, Hess, what do you think about Smithy's side there? Well, look, we are as good in New Zealand as India are in India, and we know our conditions particularly well. So, I mean, that, that side's 
pretty much a given. I mean, number seven's probably the slot where you either go for the spinning all-rounder uh, and someone like a Ratchin Ravindra, or you go for a Daryl Mitchell uh, or a Colin de Groenholm, who's, um, you know, I'm not sure if he's back to full fitness or not a, for Northern, but uh, hasn't set the world on fire just yet. Uh, but that's the role, you know, whether New Zealand uh, want to go on. I, I think they have to go on with four seamers against Bangladesh. Uh, their record in New Zealand at home is exceptional. Why would you change it? I mean, the spinners' role in New Zealand, they don't really bowl the ball until uh, the fourth or fifth day. And, and to be fair, against Bangladesh, if New Zealand get it right, uh, it shouldn't go that long. Uh, the seamers, our New Zealand seamers, are exceptional in our conditions. So, uh, Ajaz, uh, it's probably the only sport, and I remember to actually talked to Smithy earlier about this, where would it be that you would, you would get 10 wickets in an innings the third time ever in the history of the game and then potentially not play the next test match? Uh, and to be fair, it's hard to see how you would play them in the next test match in New Zealand conditions. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Love talking cricket with you. Love the Christmas trees in the background. Cheers, bye. Thank you. See you guys. See you, Smitty. Joining us now all the way from Perth, White Ferns captain and WBBL champion. She was the captain of the tournament, our fabulous Sophie Devine. Sophie, welcome. How are you? How are you doing over there in Perth? Look, I'm very good, thanks, Laura. Um, it's been a pretty whirlwind last sort of week or so. Obviously, celebrations lasted a couple of days there, as seems to be um, the norm these days. But look, it's been a pretty fantastic last sort of six or seven weeks. You, you, you've been flat stick though, because you uh, were with the White Ferns in England, then straight into the WBBL, and then you win the thing. Uh, you were superb, like I mentioned, captain of the tournament. Um, you got 442 runs from your 14 matches with an average of 34. I mean, in the final alone, you top scored and you took a wicket. I mean, is there anything you can't do? Are you exhausted? Um, oh, look, I think this is what all those ugly, horrendous hours spent in the winter months, sort of plodding away on the pavement and things like that. So you get to these points and you actually feel OK. I think for me, this is sort of the, the peak of the season, this smack bang in the middle of summer. So, look, I'm, I'm actually feeling really good. I've now got a, a little bit of a training window now because I can't get back to New Zealand until after Christmas. So I'll use this time really wisely to make sure that, you know, I'm fit and ready and, and ready to get going as soon as I get back back home. That WBBL is such a great tournament and it was so fantastic to watch you right at the forefront of it. And I know watching Kiwis in that tournament isn't new, but this was your second season with the Perth Scorchers to come away with a maiden uh, title victory. I mean, you must be so pleased with yourself. You led them to a victory of that note. Oh, look, I think, you know, it, it really does go to back to the people here and, and the person at the top, CEO Chris Matthews over here is absolutely mad about um, women's sport and women's cricket and she's been plotting this title I think for you know as long as the tournament's been going on so six seven years and, and she's been a massive piece of that the support that we get here in WA is is outstanding and to think you know we played at Optus Stadium which is which is huge for us and we had the the largest standalone crowd for a women's game I think fifteen and a half thousand people was I guess testament to the work that goes in from from the scorchers environment and it's Obviously, the players do the job on the pitch, but there's so many people and things that go on behind the scenes that make what we do, I guess, possible. When you look at our version of the WBBL, obviously our Super Smash, how do you compare? Where do you think New Zealand could perhaps up its game or is perhaps leading Australia? Oh, look, I actually think we lead in terms of still having the double headers. I think that's a really great concept in terms of getting people into the crowd and also the, the combination of the teams being able to link in. Like I think about the Blaze and the Firebirds and the connection, the relationship we've got between that is really special. So I think that's something actually we have over the Aussies. I think, though, however, uh, the, the professional environment that 
the WBBL provides for the female athletes over here is probably streets ahead of where we are. We're certainly making some, some really good strides in terms of investing in the domestic game and, and, and investing in the white ferns. But look, these girls are training 10 months of the year. They're on you know, full-time wages. They're able to train every day. Um, and I think you can see that in terms of their, their physical preparation. You see that the way that they can move in the field, their athletic ability is something that I certainly notice when I come over here. You, you're also seeing bowlers that are starting to, to bowl quicker. We've got a number of players that are playing in the WBBL that are now you know, clicking over 120 Ks and there's a lot more boundaries being scored as well, which when I'm bowling, not, not so much of a fan of, but I think that's great and it really adds to the spectacle of the game. The Wellington Blaze are well underway uh, here in New Zealand and boy, Amelia Kerr particularly on fire. You'll be chomping at the bit to get back and have a crack at Super Smash, uh, but you must be pleased with how the, the women are progressing. Oh, absolutely. I think obviously we've got great preparation leading into the Home World Cup in a couple of months' time. The, the fact that we've got the Super Smash, you know, right in the thick of it now, as you say, Millie Kerr's absolutely dominating, which is great to see. And my old mate Susie Bates um, tuning out the runs again, which is really pleasing after a, a lengthy um, time on the sideline with her shoulder injury. So, yeah, look, I, I can't wait to get back into Super Smash. I always love playing for the Blaze. I, I might not be able to get into the team the way they're going at the moment, though. But, um, <laughs> look, it's a great competition for us leading into that World Cup. Well, let's talk about that World Cup. I mean, you, you've got such a fantastic summer of cricket ahead of you and then ending the summer with a home World Cup. Has it, has it struck you yet, the magnitude of, of what is about to happen here in New Zealand and you are going to captain our side that plays in that tournament? Um, no, it hasn't. It sort of is a little bit like when we tour overseas. It's not actually until you step foot on the plane that it feels that it's real. So absolutely, I saw the other day, obviously, it's the 100-day countdowns well and truly underway now. And it, um, it is. It, it still seems quite surreal to think that it's just around the corner. Obviously, we've got a truckload of, of cricket still to be played before the World Cup, which, as I say, is, is going to hold us in really good stead to think that we're going to have a full summer of cricket under our belts going into that World Cup, which... You know, if we're not ready and firing by then, I don't know if we ever will be. When we look at the England series, um, it wasn't the results maybe that you would have liked over there, but the performances that were put on the board, you can test it. There wasn't really a game where it ever just went so far in England's direction. You know, the White Ferns constantly competed. That must have been really encouraging as you come towards this really busy summer with obviously uh, the cherry on the, uh, the, on the top, which is the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, you did right there. I think for us, look, results were disappointing, but I think when you look at the bigger picture, which is something that we've been doing for probably the last 12, 24 months, is looking at the bigger picture with the World Cup being the final step for us, is we are making some progress in terms of our performances. And to, and to remember as well, England are the reigning 50-over world champs, and to think we probably should have taken both series, the T20 in particular, uh, we were in a really good position to win that, and especially with the one-day series, if you take away the last ODI where we were absolutely blown off the park. Um, the four other games, we actually put up a really competitive fight and it was just key moments where we just lacked that, I guess, clinical moment at the end there. So for us, I think it is. It is good. a lot of positives to take out from that tour, but we need to make sure that we continue to grow. And look, the exciting thing is, is we missed a few players over there. Obviously, Mealy Kerr was on a break. 
Rosemary Mayer got pulled out last minute with her injury, so it's really exciting to think that we've still got some real quality players to come back into that side. You and Susie Bates, I think, particularly have such a wealth of knowledge and experience in this game. For some of those younger athletes coming through, those those close losses, even that 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 last game that you mentioned, that you know where you felt you were blow, blown off the park, it's that tends to be where you learn the most about you as an individual and and what you've got, and as a team, how you figure out how to make sure that you tip the ledger and you win those those little moments that get you to the victories, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the, the coaching staff have been excellent, especially over in the UK with Bob Carter, Jake Oram and, and Rob Nicholl there is, is being able to dissect those sort of games as well and make sure that we're taking a lot of learnings away from it. And their, their communication, their consistency throughout um, the tour was outstanding. I think the opportunity for us to be able to as a group, sit down and really, I guess, get gritty about those sort of losses and pinpoint exactly where we went wrong and not only where we went wrong, but how we can improve it next time because it's all well and good, you know, picking apart performances, but it's how you're going to do it better next time because at the end of the day, if you're not learning from your mistakes, then, you know, you've got to ask some serious questions. So for us, hopefully if we get into that position again, winning situations, we've obviously got the experience in the bank now where... Particularly, you'd hope the senior, more experienced players can finish the job, but certainly those younger players, having been exposed to it now against England and a different environment, will know how to step up and, and finish those sort of games off. And our captain, Sophie Devine, she knows how to win titles. She knows how to win trophies. It is exciting stuff. But I would, I've always wanted to know this. So when you go and you play in, like, the WBBL or you go over and play the 20-over competition in England, you're playing with uh, athletes who you're effectively going to come up against in this World Cup. Are they your mates? And what do you take away? Do you keep a little back in the nets, like, not let them see some of your, some of your good balls or, like, show them what you can really do? How does that, how does that work in terms of, like, a battle? Oh, look, it's a really interesting one, and that's part of the reason why I love playing in overseas competitions is you actually get to learn about these players that are normally your enemies and actually turn out to be you know, just bloody good people most of the time, even some of the Australians, which you know, <laughs> is hard for me to say. But, um, look, at the end of the day, I want the women's game to improve, so I'm not going to hold anything back in the nets. If I can help a kid you know, learn a variation or how I go about facing a certain type of bowler, whether they're a New Zealander, an Australian, an Indian... I don't really care. I want the women's game to improve. So that's certainly something um, that's at my foref forefront of my mind. But I've got to admit, though, I do have a little wee notebook that I've been keeping a little few wee, you know, mm -hmm. just little wee gold nuggets of, of how we've gone about things with the Perth Scorchers this year. So, look, they might get drawn on in the World Cup. We'll just um, have to keep that one quiet. Oh, I like that. I like to hear it. So the last time we had a World Cup in New Zealand, it was, of course, 2015. The Black Caps did incredibly well getting to that final. We don't have to talk about what happened in the final, but they got there. That was the main thing. And all of the Kiwis, all cricket fans, really got in behind and just loved what the boys were doing. And I get the feeling with everything that's happening with COVID, a very similar thing could happen uh, as we get on the White Ferns bandwagon and cheer you on for this World Cup. Does that excite you? Did you get well into 2015? Oh, 100%. I was absolutely one of the massive fangirls following the boys along their journey. And I think that was the incredible thing about that World Cup is how they brought the country along with them. They certainly used, I guess, the, the team of five million along with them. And that's certainly, I guess, what we want to try and replicate. We've got the, the great schedule that we're playing in all seven venues across the country. So the opportunity to, to go out and play in front of all of New Zealand, not just the North Island or the South Island. We're playing for everyone. And I think that's something that's really important to me is, and I think Brendan said it at the time as well, it's not my team, it's not Bob's team, it's New Zealand's team. And, and I think that's something that, that really excites me is, 
the chance to, I guess, inspire the next generation of, of not only female cricketers but just cricketers. We, we saw the impact that the boys had um, on cricket in New Zealand was, was enormous. So if we can sort of replicate even slightly what they were able to achieve, um, I think we'll, we'll be really proud of that. Gives me goosebumps, Soph. It's going to be so great. So who are the big rivals, do you think, for this tournament? Who are the, who are the team that you've got your eye on that you think are going to be a real threat in this tournament? Oh, look, I think, I mean, hate to say it, but Australia are obviously going to be right up there. I think um, they'll be coming off a heavy load of cricket as well. They've got the Ashes themselves um, just before the World Cup. And then England as well, reigning world champs. You can't rule them out. For me, Dark Horse has got to be South Africa. I think they are quite a similar team to us in terms of they've got, I guess, a really strong core group of older players that have played a lot of cricket together and probably haven't had the, ex the success at, at, you know, international events, which I guess is pretty similar to us, to be fair. So I'm actually, you know, picking them to, to go deep into the tournament. But look, key thing for me is that we keep focusing on ourselves and what our strengths are and, and what we can bring to the table. And that's what I'm really excited about. There's different players that are standing up in the New Zealand competition. And that's what you want. You want players fighting for places and, you know, that's going to make us better as a White Ferns group. Do you think the White Ferns and women's sport in New Zealand is in a good spot at the moment? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's probably been, bizarrely, one of the positives of COVID is that people are just absolutely hungry for any sort of live sport and anything to be able to sink their teeth into. And I guess it's great timing for us with the World Cup, hopefully with New Zealand being a bit more open by March, April, that we'll get people able to get come to the grounds and enjoy that live sport, the whole occasion that it comes with it. So women's sport's been incredible the last couple of years, but I think we're only just starting to see the real rise of it now. And look, I feel certainly really privileged to be a part of um, women's sport at the moment, particularly women's cricket. And I sort of just want to take everyone along the journey with me. And Sophie, you absolutely have. You've been such a driving force and we are so lucky to have you. So thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on your WBBL win. We can't wait to get you home and watch you lift another trophy very soon. Awesome. Thanks heaps, Laura.